Well, today we're starting a journey in 1 Peter, and the inspiration for this series, we actually stole it from Peak Street Church, our congregation in Old East Dallas, which as we've seen, are celebrating their five years as a church. If you haven't been to one of the gatherings at Peak, I would encourage you to check it out. One of the things you'll notice right away, it is a very young community, mostly 20-somethings, and we are learning Uh, as a church. We are learning a ton from them, from Cameron and the leadership there. A lot of the people who walk through their doors are either de-churched or uh, meaning that they may have grown up in proximity to the church, but along the way they were either burned or turned off by what they saw in the church or they're unchurched altogether. And, and, And whether we like it or not, that is increasingly the landscape of faith in America. And so the question as we walk through this First Peter, New Testament letter in the coming weeks, our question is, how do Christians relate to an increasingly post-Christian world? Now, I know that even that phrase might have some of you cringing, post-Christian world, what's all that about? Or, or maybe it feels disingenuous to talk about a post-Christian culture from a place like Dallas in the heart of the Bible Belt. But even while Christianity still maintains a level of goodwill in many places that could certainly be said of parts of our city, the growing reality of our cultural moment is the decline of Christianity in the West. And that's an important disclaimer, the West, because religion and Christianity in particular is growing in the global South and places like Africa, even the Middle East. But in Europe and North America, The church is by any reasonable measure in decline. Each generation is becoming less religious and less Christian. And I'm not going to bore you with a litany of depressing stats, but here's one that hits a little bit closer to home. The largest mainline Presbyterian church in our country, a denomination uh, out of which we were born, in the year 1965, they had 4.3 million members in our country. By the year 2000, they numbered two and a half million, and today it's a little over a million. 108 Presbyterian churches in this denomination closed their doors last year alone. And if you look at Europe, you see a lot of the same. Just ask Callum, who grew up in Scotland. The church in the West is in decline, okay? That's it for this week. Let's pray. Now, we're going to get to the good news. But the question is, how should we respond to this? And what will it look like, even though maybe we're not feeling the decline because the church in these parts still holds a level of favor, but the same may not be true for our students whom we're sending off to college or even someone living in a different part of this city. What does abiding faith in Jesus look like for those who find themselves increasingly like strangers in their own land? Well, First Peter has a lot to say about this. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to 1 Peter or grab that Bible there in front of you. It's near the end of the New Testament. It's after James, before 2 Peter, and we're going to jump right in with verse 1. Here's what he writes. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So notice you've got the whole Trinity packed in there. And then Peter says this, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And we'll end the reading there. So 
Peter, who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, decades after the death and resurrection of his rabbi Jesus, Peter writes and, uh, or dictates this letter. It was written down by a guy named Silas. And it was circulated around to these church communities in the province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And Peter had learned that the Christians in these places were facing increasing hostility and harassment because of their faith in Jesus. And so he writes to them to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. In fact, if you skip down to verse 6, and uh, by the way, you may have noticed that our text today is just two verses. And uh, Jay, who's preaching next week, a few days ago, Jay said to me, Brian, promise me you're only going to preach your two verses and not the verses that are mine for next week. And then he reminded me of a time when I had assigned him a text, but the week before in, I ser- in my sermon, I got a little bit excited and I basically covered everything that was he was supposed to preach the next Sunday. So when he got up to preach the next week, he was like, well, Brian pretty much said everything last week. So ditto. Um, He gave a great two sermons last Sunday, though. Thank you very much, Brian. So I promised Jay I was not going to go past verse 2, except for this one little part. So look down at verse 6. It says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Some of their family members are being persecuted or even killed. Some of them have had their property or their possessions taken from them against their will because they are Christians. So here's how Peter begins with a word of encouragement. He says, to those who are elect exiles. Now, throughout this letter, Peter refers to them as exiles, strangers, refugees, pilgrims in a strange land. To be clear, this is not a letter to exiles who have been driven from their native homes in native land in a geographic sense. He's writing to Christians who, because of their faith, have become alienated from their own communities. Like they're strangers with their, in their own lands. And by the way, do you know who else had this experience of being a stranger in his own land? This is from John chapter one. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus knew what it was to be a stranger. He was a stranger to the world because the world into which he came was estranged from God. And we'll be coming back to this image of a, an exile or a stranger as we make our way throughout this First Peter letter. But I want to put that verse back up because it's the other word that starts with E in this verse that trips a lot of people up. He says, to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, or here's another translation I think we have, to God's elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So here's the question. Does that mean that God knows ahead of time who is destined for salvation and who is destined for hell? Because if that's true, well, then it sounds like faith really isn't the freedom to believe. It's just that God put a microchip inside of you at the beginning of creation, and it just turns on at right at the perfect time when you think you are coming to faith, which that doesn't really sound like faith at all. Does anybody here struggle, has ever struggled with this? I was speaking at our uh, new members class this week, and it, it's, it, it's funny, this happens every single time. Every time we go through the membership course, the question that always comes up is, what do y'all believe about predestination? Like, are we all just a bunch of robots? And sure enough, this past Wednesday night, the question came up. Somebody asked, Pastor, what's the deal with Predestination. And I told him, I, I told him, wait till Sunday. You got to come Sunday. I'm going to be preaching about it. 
but God already knows what I'm going to say. And at that point, the five-point Calvinists in the room were all cracking up. Everybody else was like, that's, that's not funny. It's just not funny. Uh, one of my big themes with the new members, I will often say, we are followers of Jesus first and then everything else second. Followers of Jesus first. Like, let's major on the majors, not get too caught up in, in the doctrines that tend to divide Christians into different camps. And so I've been agonizing all week because this can be one of those doctrines. Like, what am I going to say about election or predestination? And whose idea was it to start with just two verses so that I can't avoid it? But the longer I've sat in the opening words of 1 Peter, the more and more it feels like encouragement to me and not just trying to whip up controversy. So let me try and explain why. First of all, what I find so interesting when you start paying attention to it is how often the writers of Scripture use the language of election. They, it's like they just assume it. So take, for example, Ephesians 1. In him, we also were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything. Or 1 Thessalonians, for we know that he has chosen you. That's election language. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. Or here's another one in Acts. When the Gentiles heard the word of God, they were glad and they glorified God and as many as were ordained to eternal life. There it is again. They believed. And I want to show you one more because this is going to bring us in a roundabout way back to 1 Peter. There's a moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus was teaching about these kinds of things, and he was saying stuff like, no one can come to the Father unless, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And the disciples were like, oh man, here he goes again, talking about this election language, the Father draws them. Well, after Jesus wrapped up this section of teaching, we're told on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So if you've ever struggled with some of this language, you're not alone. Even some of his own disciples didn't like it. In fact, some of them walked away because of it. But then, and this is fascinating, after many of these followers um, sort of dispersed and left, Jesus turned to his core 12 disciples. And here's what he said. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And so they're all kind of looking around at each other. And finally, one of his disciples, I'm not going to tell you which one, but one of his disciples responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Anybody want to guess which disciple that was? Peter. And what I love about Peter's response, it's like he gives the correct answer. It's theologically appropriate. Jesus, you have eternal life. But there's also this subtle tone of reluctance. Like, I'm kind of struggling with this teaching too, but where else am I going to go? I mean, I, I burned the boats. I, left, I quit my job. I left my family. I'm stuck with you, and you've got eternal life, so I guess I'm going to need to stick around and lean in whether I like the teaching or not. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, that pretty much nails it for me. I mean, if it's in the Bible, then I better, get, I better accept it, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. And I don't want to get too lost on this, but I know that for some of you, this is a hard teaching. 
And maybe some friends invited you to Highland Park Prez and you like the church or the kids ministry is great, but you've kind of heard about this predestination stuff and you're just not sure what to think about that. Or maybe you've grown up in this church or a church like this, and yet you've always had this lurking question and maybe that's led to some doubt. Like what about the people who aren't chosen by God? Or how could a loving God not choose everyone? So let me try and respond to that because I, I have been there and I, and I still at times struggle with this. First of all, we should tread very lightly because we have no idea who's chosen and who's not. It is not yours to know. It's not mine to know. You can't scan the crowd at church and be like, well, that person's definitely not chosen because I've seen how they live and I'm not so sure about that guy or that girl. No, we don't know. It is not ours to know. Or maybe you're thinking, I don't even know if I'm chosen. Like, what if I'm not? So let me just say this, and this is more of a pastoral word. If you're worried about whether you're chosen by God and that's creating anxiety or fear, you know what that is? Maybe that's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's what Peter talks about in this text. Maybe that's the Spirit of God already working in your life. He's stirring in you. And if he is, let him cooperate with him. That's the spirit of God leading you into faith, into trust, into belief and sanctifying you. This should encourage you and not make you anxious. The spirit of God is stirring something in you and leading you into faith. Let him stir away. Now, I want to talk about this word in verse 2. Paul, uh, Peter says this, to those who have been a cho chosen according to the foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God, and you'll see this word from time to time in the scriptures. And I think we get stuck here, some of us, because we define foreknowledge as foreseeing. Like, God sees what is going to happen. He already knows. He already sees what's going to happen. And so he chooses you on the basis of that. Is that what foreknowledge means? Well, here's another foreknowledge verse in the Bible, in Jeremiah, where God says to the prophet, he says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Okay, what's he saying there? In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, to know, to know doesn't just mean I know about something or I see it. So in Genesis, we're told that Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore him a son. That doesn't mean that Adam saw her and she got pregnant. It means he loved her. He made love to her. They experienced love in the most intimate way. Or later in the New Testament, this language shows up in the Christmas story. In fact, one Advent, I remember I had to speak to all the preschool age kids in the entire church and I had to read the Christmas story and I came to this line in Matthew where it says, and Joseph did not know Mary until she had given birth to a son. And there was a little boy whose hand, I mean, just shot up right away. And he said, Pastor, what does it mean that Joseph didn't know Mary? Like, I don't get it. Can you please explain that? And I said, I think your parents are going to have a great answer to that question. And so you should very much ask them. Thank you. Let's continue. Okay, to know in the Hebrew language is very much to love. So when God says to Jeremiah, I knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb, what God's is saying is, I set my love on you. 
I united myself to you before you were even born. In other words, foreknowledge in the scriptures is not about foreseeing. It means foreloving. I loved you before you could ever love me in turn. I pledged myself to you to give you all that I am. Does that make any sense? So here's what I think Peter is saying to these persecuted Christians. They're suffering. They're under attack. And he's saying, verse 1, right out of the gate. This is the memo line to the letter. And he says, God loves you and has loved you from all of eternity. And he does not give up on those he loves. You are his. You belong to him. He chose you. And no matter how bad things get, he will not give up on you. Election is not this cold, scientific, rational picking and choosing from before time and this person's going to be saved and this person's going to be condemned to hell. That is not the doctrine of election. It's a category of language that describes the way God feels toward his people. And, and, and this is really important, it is never ever used to describe people who aren't elect. Like non-elect is not a category in the Bible. Tim Gombas is a Pauline scholar and here's how he explains this. He says, when I speak of my wife, uh, when I speak of my wife, I use categories to describe my relationship to her and they're different from all the other categories. So she's, she's my lover. She's my, she's my intimate partner. And he, what he goes on to say, he says, he says, I don't walk around looking at every other woman as my non-lover or my non-intimate partner right? That's just creepy, and that's going to get you written up by HR or something else. No, I look at them as my neighbor or my coworker or my colleague or my friend. They're just, it's different categories altogether. When I'm speaking of my wife, I use one kind of language. When I'm speaking of everybody else, I use different language. I don't use the same language in a negative way. Now, the closest thing in the Bible to language like this, and I know some of you, like the John Rains in the house, are already there and you're already thinking about this, but what about when God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Does that mean that God predetermined that Pharaoh wouldn't believe? I mean, it sounds like God has just decided Pharaoh's fate, like he's toast. And it sounds a little like non, non-elect. But then when you go back into Exodus and, and you read the story, 10 times we're told Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And 10 times that choice is confirmed by God. In other words, what God is doing is he's giving people over to the desires of their heart. And if that's a heart that is hardened toward God, then ultimately he will let you have what you desire. And yet this question still remains. If God chooses us and draws us in love to himself, does that mean that I don't have any freedom? Like, what does that do to free will? And I know there's always a little bit of danger in using an illustration like this to try and explain a complicated doctrine, but here's an image that might be helpful, and I'm indebted to a guy named Mike Ear for this. So let's say I go to Love Field, and if I get on Southwest Flight 472, that flight is predetermined, uh, predestined to go to Reno, Nevada. I don't know if Reno, uh, Southwest flies direct to Reno, but let's just roll with it here. The flight has been chosen before the foundations of the day or whenever Southwest decided where their flights were going to go. That plane is taken off and all the people on it are going to Reno, Nevada. That itinerary was predetermined. 
Now, the choice that lays before me as I go to Love Field and as I convince myself to go past Chick-fil-A and not get anything, the choice I make when I'm headed to gate 18 is whether I want to get on the plane. In the scriptures, Paul's language that those who are in Christ have been predestined to glory, to sonship, to, to, to all these incredibly wonderful promises, that's like saying the Southwest flight has been predestined to go to Reno. That doesn't necessarily mean that God has selected the individual members of those who are in Christ and not selected others. He simply said, those who are in Christ, they're going this direction and there is nothing in this world that can stop those who are in Christ from going this direction. Now, related to that, and this is a problem whenever we read our English translations of the Bible, we don't have a plural version of you. Okay, in Texas we do, but the Bible translation committees haven't kind of picked up on that and decided to go all in with Texas yet, so they haven't adopted y'all. And so when Peter or Paul, when they say things like, you were predestined, you were chosen, that's plural. Y'all have been chosen. Election is not an individual category. It's a people who are in Christ and he will not give up on them. So, is God sovereign over all things and does he choose and call people to himself in love? Yes. And are humans free to choose his love and, and to choose his salvation and even to reject it? Yes. And there is mystery in that. Somehow those two things hold together. Charles Spurgeon was a great 19th century Baptist preacher. And one day he went to see a man who was sick and lying in his bed. And Spurgeon said to the man, he said, how you doing? And the man said, well, I don't know if I should take my medicine or not. And Spurgeon said, why not? And he said, well, because I don't know if I'm predestined to live or to die. He says, it doesn't really matter, I suppose. If I'm predestined to live, then it doesn't matter what I do. If I'm predestined to die, it doesn't matter what I do. And so here's what Spurgeon said to the man. He said, well, I think I can answer that question right now. I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. If you do take your medicine, you're predestined to live. And if you don't take your medicine, the doctor tells me you're predestined to die. Our decisions, our choices in life matter. God loves you enough. He loves you too much not to give you that freedom. And those who are in Christ have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father who loved them from before eternity. And somehow we hold those things together. And you know, if someone corners you on this or they ask you, hey, I've heard you go to you know, a Presbyterian. How can you Presbyterians believe in all that predestination stuff and they start asking you and peppering you with questions that you don't have an answer to? A perfectly reasoned and thoughtful answer to that question is, I don't know. Like, that's a really good question. And I'd love to learn more about that. Maybe we can study that together, but I don't have it all figured out. Peter says to this pressed down, persecuted Christian community, some of whom are wondering, can I hold on? Can I stay anchored and faithful? And what if I fail God? And what if all the pressure, what if I give up and I deny? And what if my faith doesn't hold? And Peter says, the reason God loves you is not because of anything that you have done or anything you could earn. It's not because you've been more obedient or you're more faithful. It's just grace. 
It's a gift. Allie and I talk about this sometimes, how for both of us, although she might say that it runs a little bit deeper in her story, but we have both had to come to terms with just our need to prove ourselves in every area of life and certainly when it comes to our Christian faith, that there is something in us that just when we see the gap between who we are and, and who we know we're called to be and, and, and the way that we're actually living, it's like the weight of guilt, it sometimes crosses the line from healthy repentance into just shame. And it's like what I need to do is I got to get back on the obedience train and strive for more and earn God's love. And I can't be a hypocrite and I can't say one thing or preach one thing and then let my life tell a different story. And we're, we have seen this together, how it's made us, it, it's made me an anxious Christian. And I'm always wondering, am I okay? Am I right before God? And, and, or, or, is, or is he disappointed in my lack of obedience? And do I just need to do a little bit more? And then you hear this promise. You, Brian, you, Allie, you, church, have been chosen according to the foreknowledge, the love that your heavenly father has claimed you with from before time. There is nothing you can do, nothing that will cause him to turn on you. So stop trying to earn it. And don't be afraid. God says, you belong to me. Let my spirit go to work. Let him shape you and sanctify you and let me wash you in the blood of my son Jesus, whom I sent for you. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you that you have given us the gift of this hard teaching, that you love us from before creation, and there is nothing that you can do to separate those who are in Christ Jesus. And I pray that even as we go from this place as redeemed women and men who have been sanctified and are being sanctified by the Spirit and washed in your blood, and even as we celebrate baptisms and how you have drawn us into your beloved community, I pray this would be a message of hope and encouragement and deep comfort, and I pray that it would give us courage to continue following you. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray all this in his name. And everybody said together, amen. Can I ask you to stand for a benediction?